Good morning. It's been a week. Uh, so glad that you're here. So thankful for the beautiful weather uh, outside and uh, that we could enjoy it. So thanks for, thanks for coming out this morning. Just so you know, things are going to be a tad bit different uh, today. We're going um, to do some singing mid-sermon. Okay, not led by me, though, uh, led by more gifted people. But I just wanted to warn you about that. Um, if, I, if you're like, oh, wow, he just ended his sermon in 10 minutes. No, no, I didn't. We're going to keep going. Um, but hey, before I jump in, I just want to remind you, one thing we do every Tuesday is our pastors go online at two o'clock for a live Q&A. I don't know if you've seen that, but we do it on YouTube and Facebook. And you can always catch the replay if you're at work and you can't catch it at 2 p.m. on Tuesdays. But the reason I want to let you know is you can submit questions for that. So obviously last week we preached on the election. That's kind of a big topic. We got lots of questions, which was great. And there were some tough questions in there, and it's great. And we love to be able to engage with that. The purpose of this is to continue to engage in what we're teaching on from Scripture and to wrestle through it. So if you want to submit a question, you can go to slido.com, S-L-I-D-O.com, enter in code 917, and uh, you can enter a question in there. If you're online, you can do that as well. So grateful that you guys are joining us online right now. All right. All right. So let's jump in this morning. Uh, If you haven't heard, uh, it's the Sunday after the election. um, And we're not we're going to take one more week off from our our blank home sermon series that we've been doing all the fall. And and this morning, I'm not going to talk about politics or the election or anything like that. I think we all could use a break from it. Um, But here is what I'm going to talk about this morning. I want to talk about hope and disappointment. I want to talk about the feeling of longing that we all have for a better world. That feeling that we have as followers of Jesus, where we we just long for Jesus to return and make all things new. I think I did say several times, maybe Jesus will just return before Tuesday, you know, and that would just, that would help settle things. But have you ever been hurt by someone, uh, disappointed in something, gone through a traumatic situation in your life? So maybe you have been disparaged by another person, or maybe you've lost a job, or you're struggling through loneliness, or a hard marriage, or you've lost a loved one, or you've dealt with illness, or things like anxiety, all of these things. Have you ever gone through something really hard And then someone has said to you in their desire to give you advice, in their desire to encourage you, right? With good motives inside, they say something to you like, hey, God's got this. Like he's got it. You're like, all right, cool. Uh, God's on the throne. He's on the throne. You're like, you can trust God. He's in control right now. And someone has said that to you. And those are all true statements. Those are good statements. But when you're walking through something hard or you're feeling disappointment in life, sometimes those statements can feel trite. Kind of like these ethereal statements that you really can't disagree with philosophically or spiritually, but it doesn't feel like they have much substance that are gonna help me in a very real struggle that I'm experiencing right now. And in these post-election days, 
No matter your opinion of, of the outcome of it, these statements are thrown around a lot by Christians. And again, with, with good motive, with, with good reason, and there's nothing wrong with it. But right now, we're not less than 24 hours away from, from learning the outcome of the election. And, and there are many Christians I know that I've spoken to already who feel a deep sense of relief from the outcome because the last four years were really hard for them. And I've also talked to many Christians already who feel a deep sense of fear and disappointment because they fear what are the next four years going to bring? So both legitimate feelings. And yes, God is on the throne. He has been on the throne. Yes, God does have this. He is in control. He will always be in control. But what does that even mean? Like, can we throw some meat on those bones and ask the question, how do we live as followers of Jesus in this fallen, disappointing, broken world? What does it actually mean to lean on the reality that God has it and he's in control? That's what I wanna do this morning. And so to answer that question, we're gonna go to the scriptures as we should because this is something that the apostle Paul really struggled with. Um, and I think so openly in the scriptures. Um, he lived a hard life. He experienced a whole lot of brokenness and suffering. And Paul experienced suffering externally through people persecuting him, beating him, disparaging him for what he believed and preached. And Paul also experienced suffering internally. He openly struggled with anxiety. Paul did. Paul openly struggled with self-deprecation and feeling like he was the least of the apostles. He openly struggled with his past and the sin of his past before he knew Christ. He openly struggled with relational brokenness where he lost friendships. And in the letter that he wrote to the Philippian church, the book of Philippians, Paul openly admits that if he could have his preference, if he could have it his way, he would rather just go be with Jesus. No longer endure the brokenness of this world and just go be in heaven. He says that Philippians 1, 23 to 24, he says this, I'm torn between two desires. I long to go be with Christ, which would be far better for me, amen? But for your sakes, writing to the Philippians, it is better that I continue to live. Now listen, I don't read this from Paul as like impressive piety. I read this as someone who deeply struggled with disappointment and suffering in the world, but yet was also deeply committed to the call that God put on his life. And so the apostle Paul has really important things to teach us when it comes to how do we live in a broken world as we wait for Jesus to return and bring us to our home, which is with him. So I wanna read a, a section of the book of Philippians for us this morning. We're gonna be starting in Philippians chapter three, starting in verse 17. And we're gonna read into chapter four, throughout our time together this morning. But for right now, let's just do Philippians chapter three, verses 17 to 21. And, and this morning, I'm gonna be reading from the New Living Translation. I, I normally read from the English Standard Version, 
Um, but sometimes I like how the New Living Translation reads. And so this is one of those passages as well. So starting in verse 17, Philippians chapter three. Paul says this, dear brothers and sisters, writing to his church that he planted, pattern your lives after mine and learn from those who follow our example. For I have told you often before, and I say it again with tears in my eyes, that there are many whose conduct shows they are really enemies of the cross of Christ. They are headed for destruction. Their God is their appetite. They brag about shameful things and they think about only about this life here on earth. But we are citizens of heaven where the Lord Jesus Christ lives and we are eagerly waiting for him to return as our savior. He will take our weak mortal bodies and change them into glorious bodies like his own using the same power with which he will bring everything under his control. So the apostle Paul speaks here in this section of two groups of people. One group of people whom he says they reject the cross of Christ they do not have any hope beyond this life. They don't have any hope of joy beyond their experience on this planet right now in this life, right here, right now. This is it. This is their shot. The other group of people, he explains, hey, they are citizens of heaven and they actually do have a hope beyond this life. They are eagerly waiting for Jesus to return and transform everything into the place that we all long to live. They have a hope beyond this life. So two groups, one who has all their eggs in one basket, this life right here, right now, it's all I got. And then the other that believe in Jesus and they're waiting for him to come and make all things new. And notice how the apostle Paul describes the group of people who reject Jesus and they don't have hope beyond this life. He says in verse 19, he says, their God is their appetite, meaning that they're always chasing after things this world can feed them. And nothing is really satisfying. So there's thing to thing to thing to thing. He says, they brag, they talk about shameful things. They only think their minds are set only on the things of this world. So in other words, they only pursue, talk about, and think about the things of this world, this life right here, right now. This world and the things that this world has to offer us in their minds is their only shot at joy, at having purpose, at having meaning, of doing something significant with their life. And so when the world disappoints them, when joy is elusive, when things feel meaningless, when suffering and struggle actually come, it can be especially unnerving and scary because this is my one shot at joy and I'm being robbed of it. Now, when it comes to those who believe in Jesus, Paul says they're citizens of heaven Look how Paul describes them as 
eagerly waiting for Jesus to return and transform their broken bodies in this broken world into something new, right? There's this recognition that this world is broken. Our bodies are broken. Our government is broken. Joy is elusive. Disappointment and suffering, they do abound. Yet it won't always be like this. And it's not up to us to figure out how to reverse it. We eagerly wait for Jesus to come and reverse it and make all things new. So you see the difference between these two groups. One is obsessed with their experience in the world because it's all they got. The other is eagerly waiting for Jesus to return. And here in Philippians, Paul says in verse 18 that it brings tears to his eyes because he can see people in the church, followers of Jesus who claim to know and believe and have hope in Jesus. And he says that they're living their life as if there is no hope beyond this world. And he says he knows that because he can observe it by their conduct in verse 18. They show themselves to actually be more obsessed with this world than they are eager for Jesus to return. And the conduct he observed is this. You're always chasing things in the world. You're always talking about the world. You're always thinking about the world. And so when we experience disappointment and fear and suffering, it's so easy to get tunnel vision on the world and only think, only obsess over relief, finding relief in the world. So we think about our hurts and our pains being relieved here versus eagerly awaiting Christ to come and heal. We, we think about our enemies getting justice here instead of trusting that Christ will come and right every wrong. And so much of the Bible, this is, this is the challenge of the Christian life. So much of the Bible calls us to the hard work of waiting upon and trusting in Jesus. Trusting he is in control, that he does have this, that he is on the throne, that he will right every wrong. And the reason that the apostle Paul says that it brings tears to his eyes to watch people in the church fall into this trap of being obsessed with the world is because he himself knows that true joy is only found when you put your hope in Jesus, right? There is nothing wrong with wanting relief from the brokenness and disappointments of the world. Paul himself begged God for relief. Jesus begged God for relief from the sufferings of this world. But Paul also knew there is a difference between wanting relief even working for relief and putting your hope in finding relief in this world. Because wherever you put your hope, that is where you're expecting to find joy. And if you put your hope in anything in this world, joy will be elusive. Therefore, that's your appetite. Joy is elusive. So we're always looking to other things. If you put your hope in a president, joy will be elusive. If you put your hope in your job, joy will be elusive. And a spouse and a child and a house and a healthy body, joy will be elusive. And you'll become the one 
who obsesses over these things. It will be all you talk about, all you think about, all you chase after. But when you put your hope in Christ, when you put your hope in the cross and that Christ has cleansed us from our sin and offered us eternal life, he has given us this gift of having security of knowing my life is gonna be spent in God's kingdom for all of eternity. When you put your hope in the truth that he is on the throne, your joy will be anchored in something the world cannot touch. Your suffering can't touch it. Your disappointment can't touch it. Your life experience and hurt and trauma can't touch it. Fear can't touch it. Government can't touch it. It's anchored in something that is kept in heaven for you. And so our question for the morning is how? Right, how do I put my hope there? How do I put my joy there? How do I stop thinking about the things of the world and begin to trust in Jesus for these things? And so what Paul's gonna do as we go into chapter four is he's gonna give us four ways that we can begin to put our hope in Jesus and stop being obsessed with the things of the world. But like I said, before we do that, what I, what I want us to do is I just want us to stop in this truth. If you're like me, it's, I, I so easily want to get to give me the four ways, the four pointers, so I can put this practice into my life. And we're going to get there, but I just want us to stop. I'm going to invite Evan and Kells to come back up if they would. Um, and I want us to sing about this. And the reason why I want us to sing about it is because I want our souls, I want us to deliberately and purposefully point our souls to this truth. Later on in Philippians 4, we're gonna read about some things that Paul tells us to do. And one, some of the things he's gonna tell you to do is rejoice. Like deliberately discipline yourself to rejoice in the truths that God has given you, the promises that he has given you. Stop and Direct your mind and your heart's attention to these things. Slow down. So that's what we're gonna do. Take a minute and let our souls be reminded that we do have a living hope in Jesus, a place to put our joy and our hope that is anchored that will never be taken away from us. So we're gonna sing a song together about this. We're gonna direct our heart's attention to this thing. And then we'll go talk about how to do it. Let's sing together. How great the chasm. How great the chasm that lay between us. How high the mountain I cannot climb In desperation I turned to heaven And spoke your name into the night Then through the darkness Your loving kindness Soar through the shadows of my soul The work is finished The end is written Jesus Christ, 
through Jesus then came the morning that sealed the promise your buried body began to breathe out of the silence the roaring lion declared the grave has no claim on me let's sing that then came the morning the promise your very body began to breathe out of the silence the roaring lion declared the grave as no claim on me here we go singing Jesus yours is the victory Praise the one who set me free, hallelujah. Death has lost its grip on me, you have broken every chain. This salvation in your name, Jesus Christ, my living hope, hallelujah. Praise the one who set me free. Death has lost its grip on me You have broken every chain This salvation in your name Jesus Christ, my living 
Amen. Thanks, guys. You guys can have a seat. If you still have your Bible out and open, you can open it to Philippians chapter 4. We're just going to keep reading in our text right after we left off. But here in Philippians 4, Paul is going to give us four practical ways that we can begin to put our hope in Jesus and not in the things of the world. What does it actually mean to live out this truth that God, is ha- God, God has this, right? That he's on the throne. So let's jump right in. I'm going to just give you four. Let's go. Here's the first way. Number one, that we can begin to put our hope in Jesus and not in the things of the world. Here's number one, agree in the Lord. Agree in the Lord. Uh, let's read Philippians chapter four, verses one to three. Paul says this, therefore, My dear brothers and sisters, based on everything we just studied in the verses before, stay true to the Lord. I love you and I long to see you, dear friends, for you are my joy and the crown I receive for my work. Verse two, now I appeal to Euodia and Syntyche, two ladies in the church. Please, because you belong to the Lord, settle your disagreement. I actually, I like the ESV of this one better, this little verse where it says, agree in the Lord. And I ask you, my true partner, to help these two women for they worked hard with me in telling others the good news. They worked along with Clement and the rest of my coworkers whose names are written in the book of life. All right, the first way we anchor our hope in Jesus and not in the world is we need to look at our conflicts. Because oftentimes our conflicts point to the things in the world that we are way too passionate about. And a lot of times conflicts are triggered with people when they threaten the things in the world that I'm putting my hope in. So look how Paul exhorts these two women. A couple of observations here. First, Paul calls them both out. He doesn't take a side, right? When we're in conflict with a brother or sister in Christ, both sides need to evaluate how their own preoccupation with the world might be causing this conflict. So if you're in conflict with someone in the church, you've got a responsibility, both of you, to humbly examine yourself. Second thing Paul does here, he doesn't even address the nature of the conflict or what happened. We have no idea what is going on between these two people. We don't know the severity of the conflict. We don't know the severity of the offense that triggered the conflict. But Paul right here, it doesn't matter to him. He says, agree. Third, what does Paul do? Paul reminds both of them about the common purpose that God has put on both of them. Right? You have labored alongside with me in the preaching of the gospel. You helped me plant this church in Philippi. Look at all of these people who have come to know the Lord and has been baptized. That's because you, Euodia and Syntyche, worked together with me and others to preach the gospel. We are involved in something so much bigger than ourselves and this world. We are giving our lives to this work of preaching the good news of Christ to the world. So what does Paul do? He lifts their gaze off of the surface of this world and up to the heavens and reminds them that both of them are equally citizens of the kingdom of heaven and both of them have the same calling upon their life. If you wanna find 
an easy way to identify where your passion for this world might outweigh your eagerness for the return of Christ, look to where there is division between you and others within the body of Christ. And address the log in your own eye before you put the blame on the other person for the speck in theirs. This is important. Christians can disagree on worldly things because we're united on heavenly things. And I get that's messy. And I get we want to debate till we just we're dead on which worldly things or not, but we can disagree reasonably on worldly things because we're united on heavenly things. There are both in this crowd, because I talk to a lot of you, I know there are those of you who voted Trump and I know there are those of you who voted Biden. I know that. That's okay. Because our hope's not in Trump or Biden. Our hope's in Jesus and we have been given the high calling to together proclaim that hope to our neighbors. But if we're wasting our time and our breath disagreeing over worldly things, then our neighbors perish. So let's look to our conflicts. Some humble self-examination. Way number two, what we just did, rejoice. Philippians 4, verses four to five, the next two verses, Paul says, always be full of joy in the Lord. I say it again, rejoice. Let everyone see that you are considerate in all you do. Remember the Lord is coming soon. Paul commands us to rejoice. He issues a command. Praise the Lord, rejoice in him. Finding joy in the fact that God has claimed us as our own, guaranteed us eternal life, and he is coming soon. Our experience in this world, the Bible says, is just but a puff of smoke compared to the millions of lifetimes we will spend in the kingdom of God. And so there is always reason for joy. There is always reason to praise God, even when life is hard. But look at what Paul says rejoicing in God produces in our life. He says this, it causes us to be reasonable and considerate people. Isn't that interesting? One of the fruits of finding joy in Jesus is that we actually become pleasant people to be around. We're quick to assume the best in people, to give the benefit of the doubt. We're not quick to be critical, but we are super quick to encourage. We see other people as those that God has called us to love. And one of the fruits of obsessing over the things of the world is we become a very irritable person and we're not fun to be around. Others get in our way. They're a threat to our joy. We're quick to criticize. We're quick to assume the worst, to judge, to compare. We see others as obstacles. And the reason for this is because when we find joy in Jesus and our future is with him, then that means others are not a threat to our joy. So Paul issues the command, hey, rejoice practice this. Listen, don't let the cynicism of your mind starve your heart of the joy it needs. Practice the act of gratitude, worship, and rejoicing in God. Stop and sing like we just did. 
This has certainly been a season where many Christians have publicly displayed how irritable they are and unreasonable. The lack of consideration, the quickness to criticism for a lot of reasons. And it's robbing us of our joy. It's robbing us of our ability to put our hope in Jesus. Our neighbors don't want to be around it. So we have to ask, do I have an irritable heart? Because the cure is to rejoice. Don't let the cynicism of your mind starve your heart of its need to rejoice in God. Way number three, pray your anxieties. Next two verses, verses six and seven. Paul says, don't worry about anything and said, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he has done. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. Did you notice here how Paul does not say it's wrong to be anxious? He doesn't say, stop being anxious. That's wrong to be anxious. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say it's wrong to struggle. He himself openly struggled with that. But what Paul does tell us is that there is a difference between worrying and praying. Like when we are anxious, we can worry about it or we can pray about it. And to worry about it means to obsess over what might happen, right? To set our minds upon our fate in the world. But to pray is to go to our father and ask for help, okay? So uh, there have been so many times where my son, Leland, who probably can hear me say this, all right, where he, he might have something he builds with Legos and it breaks or something, a toy he loses and he's looking for it or something that he's trying to figure out and he just can't quite get it. And he, every time, loses his mind, just loses his mind, just freaks out. Like his instinct in those frustrating times is to scream and freak out before to come to me and ask for help. And how many times have I gotten my knees before him and I say, hey, buddy, like, like it's okay, like breathe, just ask for help. I'd be happy to help you. And no matter how many times I have said that to him, that instinct has not been reversed at all. He still just loses his mind every time he needs help. And aren't we similar? Where we have this instinct to worry and fret and obsess and let things spin in our minds, worst case scenarios, and just worrying about what might could happen in the future and all of the different ways that things could go wrong in our life. And we spin on that in our minds before we ever go to the Father in prayer. And Paul is saying that if you want to put your hope in Jesus, start working on building an instinct where you don't suppress your anxieties. That's not healthy. But where you take your anxieties to God first. Say, God, I need help. I'm so worried. I'm so anxious. All I can think about is how everything can go wrong. Help, help, please. And Paul says, if we build that instinct to go to God first, we will experience a peace from God that will transcend our ability to comprehend how that peace got there. 
All right, so those are our first three ways, right? Put your hope, how to put our hope in Jesus is we need to look to our conflicts to help identify where we might be obsessing in the world. We need to practice rejoicing. We need to pray over worrying. And lastly, way number four is set your mind on Jesus. Philippians chapter four, verses eight and nine. And now dear brothers and sisters, one final thing, last thing, fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. Keep putting into practice all you learned and received from me, everything you heard from me and saw me doing, then the God of peace will be with you. Now, this is in direct contrast to Philippians chapter three, verse 19, about people who only think they have set their minds on the things of the world. As followers of Jesus, Paul is saying that we need to discipline ourselves to think about the things of God. Now, notice that for both this and when Paul was commanding us to rejoice for both of these things, Paul doesn't say we should only do these things out of the overflow of the authenticity of our heart, right? Have you, have you ever done this before? How many times have we said, uh, well, I don't feel like I should read scripture because I don't really want to, and that would be disingenuous, or I don't wanna really worship or sing right now or rejoice because my heart's not in it, and that would be disingenuous. God knows my heart, so that's the way that it's going to be, right? And, and he wouldn't want me to do that. That's dishonest. Well, Paul completely blows that up right here. He is telling us to be deliberate about thinking about the things of God and rejoicing whether our hearts are in it or not, right? One of the ways that we actively put our hope in Jesus is to deliberately expose our minds to the things of God more frequently and consistently than the things of the world. Let me, let me say that again. One of the ways that you put your hope in Jesus is deliberately in a disciplined way, in a planned way, whether your heart is overflowing with authenticity or not, expose your mind to the things of God more frequently and consistently than the things of the world, no matter the circumstance, trusting that the living and active word of God will disciple our hearts into joy. Like I'm gonna to confess to you right now, this past week, this past week during this drawn out election, my heart has been more discipled by CNN and Facebook than the things of God. I mean, just straight up time, right? Consistency, frequency, content, right? If I'm just like an open container, CNN and Facebook are pouring in way more than the things of God. And it forces us to ask the question on a daily basis, on a weekly basis, who gets more discipleship time with my heart? Who gets more of its attention? Who gets to pour in more content? Is it social media? Is it cable news? Is it Netflix? It's a deliberate choice. And if we give these things more discipleship time with our heart, because that's exactly what it is, then the word of God, then we will struggle to find hope in Jesus and our minds will be stuck on the things of the world. 
especially when disappointment and suffering come. Our hearts are always being discipled. It's like a a muscle. What gets more discipleship time with your heart? Because Paul says here in verse nine, that if you put these things into practice that he is teaching us, he says the God of peace will be with you. So these aren't legalistic steps we must check off for God to bless us. No, these are the teachings that God is giving us saying, hey, you wanna put your hope in Jesus? What are the things you're fighting about here on earth? Are you deliberately rejoicing and giving thanks? Are you discipling your heart with the word of God, exposing it to the things of God? Are you coming to me in prayer when you're anxious? It's not a trite saying to say that Jesus is on the throne, that he's in control, that we can trust him. Even when life is hard, Christ has purchased us for himself and is coming back for us. But the question for us this morning is how are we cultivating that trust in Jesus on a daily basis as we eagerly await his return? Are we allowing our hearts and minds to be stuck on the things of the world or are we being deliberate to lift our gaze from the world to the things of God? You are free from this life being your only shot at joy. That is not true. It is not your only shot at joy. You are free from that. The brokenness of this world will not have the last word in your life. So let's follow Paul here as we eagerly await for Jesus to come. Let me pray for us. Father, this morning, as we go to your word, just to get some wisdom and guidance and truth about how we navigate confusing, disappointing times in our world, I pray that we would take Paul's instruction to us to heart. That that we would believe that we truly can have joy and hope in Jesus. That that's a substantive thing. It's not just a, nice religious saying, but help us to follow your word, to be people who set our minds on the things of God, who deliberately rejoice, who go to you when we're anxious. So God, help us with these things. Help us to be people, as your word says in Philippians 4, that just let our reasonableness and our, consi- our ability to be considerate of others known to everyone that as we have our hope placed in you and we have our joy in you, that God, we would just be a breath of fresh air to our neighbors around us. Would you build that in our lives, God? Help us to trust you. We love you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.